for all of eternity, for the rest of time, Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit will be praised as the one and only God. And we, the people of God, will be the ones who will get to lift high His name and worship and focus on Him for all of eternity. And I couldn't help but think when singing that song, like I can tell within me there's a spirit. There's a spirit that's wanting to give God everything. But at the same time, this morning, there's a flesh that I'm still wearing that is dull and bored easily by the majesty of God. And fighting against that, But by God's power, His Spirit within us will always well up the affection that He wants us to have for Him. So let's do this together. As people who admit we're weak in the flesh but strong through God, we're going to pray and ask God to be with us and thank Him for all that He is. Let's pray. Father, God, You were too good. And God, when our experiences lead us to conclude you're not good or to see you small or to come to a conclusion that's not right, would you direct our eyes back to Jesus to see what you're really like in flesh like us, totally and completely consumed with your creation, lavishing on us love that we do not deserve despite our sin and our failures. You love us unconditionally. God, praise to you is due. Thank you, Father, for your love and sending your Son. And then thank you for giving us the Spirit to help us, to counsel us, and to comfort us. And so I pray this morning, as we've gathered, we've greeted each other, we're fellowshipping, that this would be a morning where our eyes are reminded of why you're so wonderful why you want our affections on you and nothing else. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It's that time again. We're here another year closing in on 2020 and Christmas time is here. I didn't mean for that rhyme, but it just did. I feel like I should have just kept going. And now we sit and gather round in the chairs of church. We do not frown, because here we are to preach and learn. So now from hell we will turn. I don't know. I just made that up. It's all right. Um, Gifts. Gifts is what we're going to be talking about today. And if you think to Christmas time getting gifts... Maybe you've had that experience when everyone's gathered around and they're staring at you while you have a present in your hand and you're tearing the wrapping paper off. But then there's this sudden, there's this kind of like this, this looming darkness in your, in your stomach because you know you're going to have to open up and reveal what this gift is and be excited about it regardless of what it is. Um, and we all know what it's like to have all eyes on us and to get a gift that like we could care less about. Uh, man, I tell you what, I tell you what, that one, that one, that gift doesn't last long around here. I mean, you you say whatever you got to say just to try to get through that awkward moment. You know, we all have different gifts that we enjoy more. Like some of us would get excited about getting some straps for our truck, you know, to hold wood down, you know, but then others would open that up and see these straps from Harbor Freight and be like, thanks. Is there a gift receipt in this bad boy? Right? Varying gifts, 
varying affections, varying things that we get excited about. Today, though, today when we go into the book of John, we go to chapter 1, we continue where we left off with the dawn of new creation. The gift of the new creation is going to be revealed in John's word, and we're going to find out that this is a gift that all of us, all of us can and should be excited about because it is a gift that we all desperately need more than anything else on the planet. And some of us, when we hear of this gift, people on the planet hear of this gift, they hear the name of Jesus, which is the gift. There's not excitement, there's not praise, there's not wonder. There's a dismissal and a rejection and a turning away of the greatest gift of all of eternity. We're going to be looking at why the gift of the new creation is so absolutely wonderful. John chapter 1 John chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 10. If you would turn there last week, we got to see the the horizon that was dark and the the dawn of the new creation coming to show us something. And throughout time, the Old Testament revealing that something better is coming. And in Jesus Christ, in the word that was with God in the beginning and was God, was being sent to the earth and dawning a new creation. But here's what's interesting. The new creation is coming through Jesus Christ, which is the gift we're going to look at. It has come through him. It is him. And John has made very, very painstaking efforts to show you the beauty and the wonder of Jesus being God himself. That's why he made everything through himself and not without him was not anything made that was made. And now the light is dawning and it is shining and it is overcoming the darkness. And in the end, the darkness will be completely pierced through and will be no more and be done away with. And there'll be nothing but the radiance of Jesus left to light the people of God. We rejoice in that now. It's here already, but it's not yet complete. Time is moving. People are still in the world and people still need to believe. And so this message is having time to get out to everyone to see the gift of the new creation that we must all accept. Now, here's what we must do at the very beginning. We've got to get through verses 10 and 11. Why do I say we've got to get through it? I said because 10 and 11 don't necessarily talk about the wonder of the gift. 10 and 11 talk about the sad nature of the world. But we have to understand the nature of our situation Accurately to be able to appreciate the gift to its fullest extent. John chapter 1 verse 10. Look at this desperately sad condition. Says this. He, the word, Jesus, was. There's that word was again. Not is, but was. He has always been. He was in the world. When it says the world, it's talking about the whole populace of people that exist on planet earth. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. He's the creator, the sustainer, according to Colossians. Yet, look at this, yet the world did not know him. Yet the world did not know him. The the creator, the one who made us, our designer, our father, our creator, the world does not naturally know God. We are all born apart from an intimate knowledge of who God is. Let me say it again. We're all born 
apart from an intimate knowledge of who God is. Now, I didn't say this. Here's what I did not say. I did not say we are all born apart from the knowledge of God. Creation tells us that God is real. That's why Romans, Paul says in Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what He has made and what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaim His handiwork. Creation tells us God is real. Not only that, morality tells us God is real. In Romans 1, the same book, he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not know the law, or have the law of God, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Every single person on the planet has this understanding of what is evil and what is good, and you can see it in the debates that we see throughout the world of people who do not know God, who try to explain morality trying to make sense of it the best they can, but all they know that it's in their heart that there's something that's right and something that's wrong. And all of these things point to the reality that God is. What we're born apart from, according to what John has said here, is that the world was made for Him, yet the world did not know Him. More than just knowledge, it's an intimate, affectionate, relational knowing that we're all born apart with. And that's not because of God's doing, that's because each man has chosen to go his own way. We have rejected God. We have gone our own way. And the Bible tells that those paths that we've all taken, many different types of road, but they're all leading away from God, are all leading to our destruction. And so now here we sit, born into a world, completely confused as we look up into the heavens. We look around at the world trying to make sense of it, seeing no purpose, filling within us a deep chasm of darkness that cannot be filled by the things that we desperately run after, knowing something's wrong, but not knowing who or what it is that we desperately need. And then, and then, the dawn of the new creation happens for us individually through the Word of God that comes and shines clarity and light into our life. And as we're going to see, gives us grace and truth. So the issue is, His light In him there is no darkness at all, but men love darkness rather than life. Even sadder, look at verse 11. Even sadder, it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. What does that mean? Israel, God's chosen people. Through the hundreds of years before this and in great anticipation and through their word and through the prophets, waited, expectedly waited for a Messiah, for the Christ, the anointed one to come, their king to come that would sit on the throne of David as they waited, 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 and anticipated and anticipated. He came! And they rejected him. It says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Could you imagine, as a parent, having a child kidnapped or lost in the forest, 
something happens to your child and they're not in your presence anymore. You know they're out there somewhere in the world. You don't know where they are. And so you, you wait desperately by the door every single night and by the phone every single night. And you're anticipating the one that you love and are waiting for. And then after many years of waiting, a knock on the door comes. And it's like, it's me. I'm your son. I'm here. And you slam the door in his face. Do we understand the sad nature of what is happening among God's people? But the mystery of it is, though, God is allowing this and has put a dark spot in their heart so that this message would go past them to us and bring it to the Gentiles and to the rest of the world. The rejection of the Messiah by the Jews has been one of the saddest events in history, yet God is using it wonderfully to bring the gospel to everyone. Paul says this when he tries to talk about his brothers and make sense of what's going on in Romans chapter 11. This is what Paul says. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it was written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may not fall? By no means. Paul says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So ask to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? As in God has his people among even the bloodline that are still his, that he's bringing to faith in Jesus. The dawn of the new creation is shining bright, church. Jesus God's Son, the one that the whole Old Testament wrote about and expected is seen clearly in the culmination of the Word through the witnesses God appointed. Now, thousands of years later, as Gentiles primarily, I assume here today, we gather with hearts worshiping in spirit and truth because of the light that God has caused to shine in our hearts. The first creation that Adam subjected to futility is passing away, and God is bringing about a new creation. But listen to this. Yes, the heavens and the earth will be made new one day, but God is setting apart for himself now a people that will first be made new. As the light dawned on the horizon, things were becoming more clear. And as Jesus lived, died, rose, and ascended, the ultimate gift once and for all was realized. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Son of Man, Savior, Emmanuel, the ultimate gift from God given to us through the Jews is now extended to all people of all nations, of all tribes and tongues as a wonderful, beautiful, unmatched, unparalleled gift. From God our Father. So, let's take this journey through the rest of John's prologue in John chapter 1 and answer the question why is this gift so wonderful? Why is this gift so wonderful? We're going to see a few things. First and foremost, because through Jesus we can become children of God. It's a gift of the new creation, is so wonderful because through Jesus and Him alone, we can become 
children of God. Look what he says here in verse 12. He just said, the world does not know him. His own people rejected him. They did not receive him, but he immediately follows it up with great news. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He says there first, but to all who did receive him, which naturally begs the question, what does it mean to receive Jesus? And he immediately defines it in the next statement, who believed in his name, what was the outcome? Since he gave them the right to become the children of God. Let me talk about that word, right. You know, you do something, you do something and someone would say, well, man, what gives you the right? You come say it in a negative sense, but let's ask ourselves, okay, if we're children of God, what has given us the right? Because we don't have the right to become children of God. When he uses that word right there, he's talking about a word that means power or privilege or ability. God is giving what we lack in our life spiritually, giving it to us so that what we do not have could be made possible through him. But more specifically, on our, on our account, through belief in who? In Jesus. This is what the whole world is wrestling over. How to be made right. How to go to heaven. Everybody has their thoughts, their ideas. Everyone apart from Jesus, left in the darkness, we're going to come up with something that's going to elevate us. It's going to be born out of works. But look what he says here next. He gave them the right to become children of God, adopted into the family. And then he explains where this comes from. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So here's what I want us to look at. Take a few seconds to look at. You have it right there in your handout. Verse 13 is going to show us what cannot make you a child of God. Here's what can't make you a child of God. And apart from Jesus, we're all going to rely on something like this. He says there, who were born, not of blood. What does he mean there? He's talking about your ethnicity. Your bloodline. Doesn't matter. This was a big issue with the uh, Jewish people. The Pharisees, they thought that they were good because they were of their father Abraham, because they had his blood in him. But Jesus comes and exposes them. If you were truly of your father Abraham, you would accept me because he would accept me. No, you're of your father the devil. What you do with me proves who you truly are, not your blood. Then he says here, nor of the will of the flesh. In the Bible, the flesh can, it can always, it normally means a negative thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean negative here. It's, it's this idea of desire, your own personal desire. And then he says here, nor of the will of man. And so I have two things I want to point out with these. I'm going to give those to you, and then we're going to talk, talk about them for just a second. Nor the will of man, either others' desires for you, or the man-made systems and religions that we may turn to apart from Jesus. All of these things that people do or we think that can make us right with God, that will make us children of God, John is saying, no, this comes through belief and a reception of the one whom God has sent not in any other thing. John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and it says, you must be born again. 
This is a work of the Spirit that happens. You must be born of the Spirit. He does the work within you. Many times you had people come to Jesus and say, what must we do to enter the kingdom of heaven? One particular time people came to him and said, what is the work we must be doing? Which is ironic because there is no work to be done to get to heaven. What is the work we must be doing? And Jesus says, the work you must do is believe in the one whom he sent. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who your family is and what your lineage is and ethnicity is will not make you a child of God. This, your own desire and your own pursuits and your own efforts of your flesh will do nothing in making you a child of God. You having others desiring for you will not make you a child of God. So let me talk to parents real quick because where is this relevant? What about when it comes to our kids, you know? Are we guilty of manipulating them into making some type of outward response because we want an inward salve? God must work in their hearts. And He will not do it through your great efforts. He will use your teaching and your influence to help them see Jesus. But He will ultimately do the work in their hearts we do not have the control we would like to have. We must be prayerful and relying on God for the work that only He can do. And then finally, He says, nor of the will of man, which could also mean the systems of man that they create to get to God. And just about everywhere you look, if you look, what's going to set Christianity apart from other religions is there's always a work that must be done. A work that must be done You think the holy God can let any bit of sin stand before him? No, he cannot abide it. No sin can stand before him. We need to be cleansed perfectly. We can't have our scales of good and bad weighted just right and have more good than evil and God be cool with it. This is the holy God who created the universe, who put a veil between him and his people because he could not stand to be in the presence of sin. Man's systems of their own efforts to get to God will not do it. But he says this, Not born of blood, will of the flesh, or man, but of God. You want to become a child of God, you have to be born from the power of God. And it happens only and simply through receiving Jesus Christ and all that He is and believing in His name. Now, I got serious. Can I take it back and get us to appropriately rejoice about what I just said now? We talked about the serious nature of it. Let's look for a second why this gift that has come with the dawning of the new creation, that you and I can be made children of God apart from our efforts or anything that we do, that anyone on the planet who's fallen down in darkness and knows the wretched condition of themselves can call out on the name of God, on Jesus, and be saved and made a child of God, eternal family. Is this gift wonderful? You better believe it's wonderful. You better believe it's wonderful because God has made a way for us to be made saved and right and children of God. Part of the family. 
You know, I can't help but to think about the song. I'm so glad I'm a part. Although I thought it was like the worst song because it always people would sing it like this. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed by the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Really? Come on. I, I've recently talked to someone who's not a believer. And in their heart, they're honest. I just don't get going to church to praise them. What's there to praise? You see, the heart of those who do not believe and do not know, they don't know why it's wonderful. Those who call on his name do and should. And I think we need to be stirred and awakened in the midst of the world we still live of the wonderful gift that God has bestowed on us in his son Jesus. Become children of God. Secondly, this gift is so wonderful because, look at this, we can see the glory of God. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we need to talk about this. This gift is so wonderful because now in this gift, in Jesus, we see the glory of God. It first says there, and the word became flesh. We've been talking about this word the whole time John has. It was in the beginning. It was with God. It was God. The world was made through him and not without him was not anything made that was made. He was, he was, now he is, he is. And we see this word from eternity past has at a point in history become flesh and dwelt among us. Several significant points from this verse. First, notice he says the word became flesh versus the word was born or created. John was always, especially through this book and even First John, dealing with those who had a problem with the incarnation of Jesus. And those who had the spirit of Antichrist that wanted to dismiss the the God of Jesus, and they want to dismiss the humanity of Jesus. Scripture teaches He is 100% human, 100% God. And that you can recognize those who do not have salvation and who are the spirit of Antichrist, motivated by the devil himself, when those people start to tamper with the nature and the character of God's Son. It was tantamount for understanding. John said, no one, no one can say that Jesus has come in the flesh. The Christ has come in the flesh, except through the Spirit. And so when he says, the Word became flesh, he's doing a good job at saying, no, eternal God wasn't created when he was born. Christmas wasn't Jesus being created. The Word, which always existed at that point in history, took flesh and he put it on himself and revealed himself in human form. Like us. That's what happened. And then why did he do it? He came and he dwelt among us, which is the same word for tent or tabernacle. God always had a presence with his people. Through the Old Testament, it was either by the smoke or the fire. And then he put himself in the Holy of Holies. And he put a veil in front of him that people could not go in. Because to be into the presence of God meant death. But then in Jesus, the word, God himself puts on our flesh nature 
And He comes and He lives among us. Presiding with us. John 14, 16 says, And I will ask the Father, Jesus says this, and I will give you another helper to be with you forever. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the book of Revelation, we're told that God is going to tent with us, dwell with us forever. So though Jesus may not physically be on the earth, God is dwelling with his people currently in a way that he never has. Now, as cool as it was, think about this, as cool as it was to have the word made flesh dwelling among the people. I mean, think about it. God right next to me. Here he is. God right here. How cool and awesome would it be? Like, man, if I just had God next to me right now, man, life would be so much easier. I want you to contrast yourself with the disciples who got to be with Jesus and the stupid things they said versus when Jesus left and they got the Holy Spirit and now they become like these crazy awesome people who can remember things and, and truly get it. That's because Jesus said, it is, to, get this, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I actually leave, physically leave you because if I don't, the helper will not come. I'm sending you a helper which is God dwelling within each of his people. God now dwells in his people, not among his people, but in each and every one of us. The dwelling in the presence of God that was barred and veiled and kept from people. We look through the Old Testament to be able to see the sacred nature of his presence now among us. And he says this, He dwelt among us and we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you think of the word glory, I want you to think of a a manifestation of presence and power. That's what they saw. Glory, and it says this, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Here's what I want you to think about when you think about this. Glory as of the one and only person who could Reveal the glory of God. Jesus is the only one that can hold the fullness of God in him and reveal the glory of God. Moses couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Isaiah, all of the prophets, all of the men in the past, the great men of faith, all talked about this one that was to come. They were not it, and they knew it. They prophesied of it, and they expected this one to come, and he has come. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, and in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. And he is the only son begotten son from the Father. God may have sent prophets, but no one is his son that has uniquely come from the Father. This is the man that I have appointed. There is no other name given on earth under heaven by which man must be saved. No other man is like this man. And for us to bring him down to the place of another man is the spirit of Antichrist. We have seen His glory. Glory as from the only Son of the Father. And He's full of grace and truth. We're going to get to that here in a second. In Jesus is the glory of God. And it can be seen. I think of Moses who wanted to see the glory of God and God would not let him see his face. 
but turned his back and shown him his glory. But God himself shows up, takes on flesh, and dwells among us. And in this wonderful gift, we can see the presence and the power of God wrapped up in Jesus. But we see something even even greater, something even more true about God, that it was made real and revealed in Jesus. And it says this, His grace and His truth. They saw His glory. Glory, and what was it like? What was, it, what was the, the manifestation of presence and power like? It was full of grace and truth, which is the third reason the gift is so wonderful. Because listen, church, through Jesus, we have the fullness of God's grace and truth. Through Jesus, we have the fullness of God's grace and truth. Verse 15, John says this, talking about John the Baptist. John bore witness about him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Why all of a sudden do we have John the Baptist mixed in in this chapter? Well, he keeps bringing up this idea of a witness, witness, witness. Hey, we're not just making this up. He was witnessed not only by multiple people, but witness even to an Old Testament prophet that was prophesied that people waited for the forerunner to come, that forerunner who even a lot of people recognized was constantly pointing people to Jesus. And in their ignorance, they kept looking to John the Baptist. Like, no, no, no. John's like, no, 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 no. I'm here to point you to the one who's greater than me. And John's throwing in a reminder. Now, hey, listen, everything that I'm talking about has also been witnessed by the prophet of God himself. And he declares and testifies of this. This is of whom I said he comes after he ranks before me because he was before me as in existed always. And then he said this in verse 16, now that he gave that little, that little digression to remind us, hey, what I'm talking about is witnessed and true. He says this, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. All church, all church, I'm so happy that I get to get up here and And have the privilege of talking about verses like this. For from His, whose God's fullness, what does that mean? His full resources. If you and I could go into heaven and go go to the back of God's house or mansion, whatever it looks like, and say, hey, take me to your resources. What would we see? There would be no limit. There would be no end. The full resources of God, do we think, are held by walls? Do we think that they're contained somewhere? Do we think that the created universe that seems to go on forever and ever, when we go into his heavenly dwelling, we're going to find a resource and a power of God that's going to be limited? And he says, for from his fullness, from that full resource room of God, we have received what? Grace upon grace. You know what that means? That means it never runs out. Where sin abounds, grace is much more abound. Because why? Your sin will actually count it down to a number. God's grace is infinite and it cannot be counted. And it will always outlast your failures and your sins. In the flesh that God's not surprised of and the weakness that you have that God's not surprised of and he made a way for you to be saved now gives his grace upon grace for you every single day. His hesed in the Old Testament, his steadfast love where he promised to love us will never depart. He promised to unconditionally love us. We're told that his mercies are new every single stinking morning. 
every morning. But what do you and I do? We wake up with a heavy heart and head, letting, letting our own fleshly thoughts about God's inability to take care of us and to forgive us and shower grace on us somehow tell us it doesn't apply to me. Oh, God went through great, great efforts to lavish his love on us and by showing us that through Jesus and how he walked, how he talked. And now from the full resources of God, we've received grace upon grace. When you think of that word grace, here's what I want you to think of. The thing that the guilty desperately need. So don't be surprised when you wake up every morning and you're guilty of something the day before. Yeah, that's why grace is given to you every single day. That's something to rejoice in. Let's not spend our days here on earth wallowing in the guilt that the blood of Jesus has cleansed and use that to motivate us on to something greater. He says there, from his fullness we receive grace upon grace. And then look what he says in verse 17. Look what he says. He says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why would he bring up the law of Moses? Why would he bring up Moses, talk about the law coming through Moses, and then contrast it with Jesus and grace and truth coming from him? Charles made a very good observation last week, one that needs to be reiterated, I think, among our church today, as we try to look at the Old Testament in an inaccurate way. When we see Jesus, we see God. When we look at the Old Testament, we see Jesus. When we look at the New Testament, we see God. They're all one and the same. And the law of God that came through Moses was very much purposeful, very much good, perfect, and we're told will never pass away. What has, I think, poisoned our minds about the Old Testament, either one, we get bored of it and it's hard to understand, or we've, we've kind of heard the saying that the Old Testament has hard passages to deal with, so we want to try to like make Jesus and what he did to kind of like make up for that. No, God is showing his fury and his wrath over his creation in the Old Testament and doing justfully righteous, holy things. All the while, it's the Old Testament that's giving us this expectation of a Savior. The law was given through Moses for what purpose? to prepare us for the gift of the new creation that would come to us. Without the law, I would not know how much I desperately needed this grace. Let me give you some verses. First of all, we're told that no one will ever be made right by the law or works. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Faith is God's requirement for salvation and righteousness, but now the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 3 has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Grace, grace has the power to change us, not the command. Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's a paradox. You mean the law that tells me not to sin doesn't help me, but the grace that is extended on me apart from the law now helps me remove the dominion of sin over my life? Powers in grace, which came through Jesus, and the work of God in us is far better than our efforts to try to adhere to a law. 
which what was the law? The law was the holy standard of God that was given for us so that the offense would abound, so we would see how wonderful holy the standard of God is to understand that we are not like Him, we have fallen short of Him, we cannot approach Him, so God, we desperately need help. That's what the law should have done for the scribes and the Pharisees who totally took it and made their own commandments with it and tried to see themselves as justified and perfect and good because of their adherence to the ceremonial laws. When they should have been falling on their face like the tax collector and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's why Jesus says that man walks away justified. Because he gets it. He gets it. The law is good and purposeful. Paul says in Galatians 3, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Go to the book of Hebrews, you'll learn more about how Jesus is the long-expected greater thing that everything in the Old Testament was a shadow of. Yes, the law came through Moses, which some of John's readers wanted to stick to and try to live by. But John's trying to say, listen, the law and Moses themselves are trying to get you to look towards Jesus. And now that he's here and you've missed him, and now you're going back to something that could never help you. It only condemns you. That's the point of the law. And you and I will greater understand grace when we understand our wickedness through comparing ourselves to the standard of God. But to try to, try to be made righteous by that standard is where we fall short. It's, it's, it's seeing how wicked we are and then turning to God for help through Jesus and His name. Why is this gift so wonderful? Because we have the full resources of God's grace and truth. Truth being reality. Reality. Which means this. If we live apart from Jesus, we are living in a fantasy world. We don't have truth. We don't have the knowledge of why we exist, where we came from, who we are, and what we should be doing and pressing towards. Jesus is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. And the fullness of that has come through him. Finally, this, this gift is so wonderful because we can know God. John 1.18, John, remember, he says this now at the end of it all. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Any, any Jew would have understood that. No, he, he dwells in unapproachable light. The only God no one's ever seen. Who is at the Father's side? Now he's talking about Jesus again. He has made him known. Here's the question I immediately had. I ran to Charles, and he came to the same conclusion that I was struggling with. In this verse, John, who is making who known? Is Jesus making God known, or is God making Jesus known? And John purposefully writes that way, I believe, because it's both. You and I can intimately know God through the gift that has come through the new creation. What was the first verse we read about the desperate condition of man? That though he was in the world and the world was created for him, the world did not know him. And now the gift that has come from God is the gift that finally once and for all deals with that desperate 
bad problem that we all have. And through Jesus Christ, we can know intimately our Creator and the one and only true God. We can know God. Now, as I'm closing, here's where I want us to reflect. He's used the word see. I've used the word see. We can see His glory. We can know God. He dwelt among us. 2,000 years later, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, uh, how does this apply to me? Because I've never seen God. I can't see Him. We, we just have the Scripture. So does any of this apply to us? Even more so. Even more so. Jesus said to doubting Thomas, who got to see and said, my Lord and my God, Jesus said, hey, listen, you confess these things and you believe because you get to physically see me. But he said, blessed are those who believe and do not see. A special blessing here on us as we reflect on the reality of grace and truth in Jesus simply through faith in the message that has been proclaimed. And this is what is this is what God requires. So let me ask you this. Do you rejoice with all of these gifts here? Or the do you rejoice with the knowledge of this gift? You read it, you see these and you're like, "Yes, yes, yes. It's wonderful. It's wonderful." Or is there a part of you that's like, "I just don't get it. I don't get it." It's got to start somewhere. And know that what you've heard here, there's nothing inside of you that has power to make you a child of God. Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden is light and He wants all of us to come to Him humbly like a tax collector, knowing and admitting the state of sin that we're in and simply in the name of Jesus, believing in Him and relying on Him for the help and the forgiveness we desperately need. John said at the end of his gospel, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The gift of the new creation is so wonderful. And if the world has distracted you from being welled with the affection for Christ and what He's done for you, I would encourage you to spend some time on your knees just asking God to rid your heart of the things that have taken His place and bring you back to a place of love and affection for what He's done for you. And if it's never happened in your heart, you make business and you take time to pray and ask God to save you because you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And you come talk to one of us or someone be gladly to help you with that. Let's pray. Father, you're so good. And even in my heart now, as I get the privilege to study this, as I get the privilege to proclaim it, I still feel within me something lacking in my flesh that should be odd to the point of speechlessness what you've done for me I don't fully grasp it but I know it stretches beyond 
the universe, beyond any wonder we could ever know what you've done for us in the gift of Jesus Christ is astounding. And so God, you would fill my heart and the holes of my faith that are lacking and where I'm doubting. And God, where we fail to praise you and recognize the wonder of this gift, you would stir within our heart our affections for you. Help us to see the grace and truth that is in Jesus, what we have through believing in his name. Help us to comprehend that and to know that like Paul, one of the Ephesians too, as he prayed for them to be able to grasp and understand this because it will lead us to a greater intimacy with you that we desperately need. God, thank you for this. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.